Clement K. Tafoye now presents Glass Sword Part 2 from the Red Queen series by Victoria Abbey. Welcome back to MNK Talk YA. I'm Marissa Snyder. And I'm Kitty Bradford. And this is our Young Adult Fiction Podcast. And this week, we finished the second book in the Red Queen trilogy by Victoria Aviard, and it was called Glass Sword. Yes. Although, isn't it a quadrology, not a trilogy? Shit. In <laughs> <laughs> the, the Red Queen quadrology by Victoria Aviard. I'm not going to edit that. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> the, the funny thing is, I feel like I was reading interviews where she was talking about it was going to be a trilogy, so I kept getting confused, too, and I was telling people about this series. It should be a trilogy, in my humble opinion. I think this series is a little bit too long. <laughs> <laughs> We're only halfway through. <laughs> I know. I know. I just, I came to, like, I, I learned something about myself this week. Okay, what'd you learn? I... I think that I am tired of series where the main goal is to overthrow, like, society. You know? Like, <laughs> the, like, the, and, like in the Hunger Games, like, the whole point was, like, there's this whole society built this, around a certain thing, and the goal of the entire series is to overthrow everything, topple the regime, completely redo the social structure of the entire world. <laughs> And I'm done with it. I'm done. I feel like we need to change our whole podcast if you're over that. Because <laughs> that's like every YA book ever. Well, especially the series, I feel like. Like a lot of YA books aren't that way. But if you're going to have a whole series, I feel like it tends to get, especially if we're talking like post-apocalyptic type of stuff, it's like. <laughs> well, but I was thinking because, I mean, think about like Six of Crows. That was one heist. Yeah. It wasn't like we're gonna overthrow the entire world. It was just like one. It was contained. But the but other, even, um, the other Lee Bardugo series we read, kind of was overthrow the world. Red Rising was kind of overthrow the world. Well, I had problems with Red Rising too. <laughs> Cinder and Co was kind of let's overthrow the world. Well, it, I, it wasn't so much overthrow the world. It's like overthrow one person, which I guess this one is too. But this one seems like more like. There's this system of, like, silvers are high and reds are low, and we want to completely erase that. And same with Red Rising. But, like, in Shadow and Bone, I felt like it was more about we want to take down the Darkling. But there was also kind of a difference between people and... I forget what they're called now. The magic people. Oh, yeah. The Grisha. Grisha. Yeah, I guess so. And, I just, and I, Cinder, I feel like they had a whole, like, structure between the lunar people and cyborg like there was a bunch of stuff they were trying to like bring equality to the world in general yeah i guess it's just like overthrowing governments (laughs) i i I don't know it's just i'm kind of over it like think about um the illuminate files like they were just taking down one corporation yeah i don't know the books that are just a little bit more focused to me i think i enjoy a little bit more like i just read um this fantastic little book and it was called The Forgotten Beast of Eld. And one of my coworkers recommended it to me. And it is a 200-page book. And it's fantasy. It's, it's not really young adult, but it is, it is fantasy. And it's just this 
small little contained story. And it was so refreshing to read in between all of this like epic, you know, fantasies that we're reading. And it was just like, it made me think, oh, I, I appreciate books more when they're a little bit more contained instead of like so far reaching and having such a huge scope that they want to cover. I don't, there's something to be said about like a, a small little contained perfect story. Yeah, that's true. I think it's just hard when, when our, uh, we're looking at series. It's hard to get a series, I think, that doesn't go too big at some point in the series without like, like it's hard to have multiple books and keep it small and focused. Yeah, I it's, that's very true. But I, I know what you mean. And I think I kind of run into this problem in my personal reading too, where I get like really into something and then I read a lot of things that are kind of similar. And it's not that the later books are any worse. It's just that I sort of mm-hmm. get sick of certain types of stories if I've read them a lot. So yeah. I wonder if we're hitting that point with our with our podcast <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> but I'm thinking of the ones that we picked out to like round off this series. And I don't think any of them are like that. I think they're more contained. Okay. So okay. we won't, I won't spoil what we're going to read, but... I know we have a list, but I have been so brain overloaded with everything that's happening in my life that I couldn't even tell you a single book that we're going to read in the future right now, <laughs> besides the rest of the series. That's, that's the only thing I can tell you right now. Okay, you'll be surprised too. <laughs> um, okay, so we're going to talk about the rest of Glass Sword today, but we're also going to talk about the two short stories that go along with this series, and they're called Queen Song and Steel Scars. So if you haven't read those... They're in um, a small paperback called Cruel Crowns. And they were written to go between the first and second book. So it shouldn't be spoiling anything up ahead. Okay. Well, let's finish Let's finish up Glass Sword. Okay. I actually like kind of forget. Where did this half start? It started where they found Walliver's body hanging and then it was a trap. And oh, that's what yeah. Maven, <laughs> Maven tries to kill them. And I was just laughing because... It's the part where he uses Mare's lightning against her, and she gets injured. And then I, f- I finish the book and realize that he... So he leaves her with these scars, right? These, like, lightning scars. And uh-huh. she has an M branded onto her. Yep. And at first, I was like... <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, I get it. He left his mark on her, like, M for Maven. But then I was like, M can be for Mare, too. So he basically just gave her a monogram. <laughs> I didn't think about that. It was just made me think like, oh, great job, Maven, you idiot. Like, (laughs) didn't think that one through. That is funny. I don't know why that made me laugh so hard. I think the second half got better. I know that you felt like it was going slow in the first half and Mm -hmm. maybe you're still over everything, but I do feel like it sort of did pick up in the second half a little bit. And I think in part because I like seeing Maven and we've had a couple of interactions with him at least now. Yes, I agree. It, it, it did go a little bit faster for me the second half because we saw Maven again at the beginning and then we see him again at the end. And we see... Okay, this is the part that went a little bit too fast for me, actually. Okay. When Alara. they... Yeah. Is she really dead? Is that it? Well, <clears throat> I think so. Because <laughs> that almost felt too easy. Yeah, I know. And, and it didn't really explain how she died. It was just like the guards started yelling and then some some action scene happened and then they go outside and they're like and then the queen's body was lying there and I was like wait I went back and I tried to reread it and I couldn't follow it I think she called a storm and like electrocuted the queen and everyone around her Mm -hmm. or something 
And she was like just far enough away that the lightning could get her, but not close enough where she could mind control her or with the confusion she didn't find her yet. Or like it seemed like it was a lucky timing thing yeah. a little bit. I think she is really dead though. Okay. Because that was just, I was just like, wait, how is she already gone? Because dealing with her is so difficult. <laughs> like, how do you, you know, like, how would you overcome her otherwise? Like, I sort of feel like it's like a, okay, let's just, I don't really know how to deal with the complicated so thing of how to, a, a mind control evil person. Let's get That's out a good of point. But I also think it's going to be good for Maven to, you know, have lost something and blame Mare for it. And I'm kind of curious. I really want to see Mare and Maven's interactions in the next book. Uh, me too. I'm really looking forward to that because I think in the set, in the middle when we didn't have any of the bad guys' perspectives, like it was just Mare, Keelor, and you know Cal. Um, mm-hmm. That's when I they start to lose me, and so yeah. I think the next book I am looking forward to that because now she's his prisoner, and there's going to be a lot more interaction. We're going to see a lot more of the bad guys' perspective, and I think that will help tremendously and and also like even with I'm kind of not too, super sad about the queen being dead because I really want the two evil people now to be Maven and Evangeline because mm-hmm. I, I think they're just a little bit more interesting characters and I was looking through King's Cage and it looks like the chapters are now divided by perspective so like there's Ooh, a Evangeline chapter I was just chapter, thinking about that yeah, because and a Maven chapter because I think that's part of the struggle of why we don't see the other side at all is because it's all told from Air's perspective right now yeah which is actually kind of different than a lot of the series we've read. Agreed. And and honestly, I I personally am not a fan of when authors start with one perspective and then change it throughout the series and like start adding different perspectives. I I don't personally don't like that, mm-hmm. but I think this book will be helped tremendously by adding those perspectives and I wish uh, Victoria Aveyard had done it from the beginning. Yeah. Or at least starting in book two, because this book, I feel like we really needed it more. The first book, I, I didn't feel like a lack of it as much, especially because um, with all the betrayal, it was almost good to not know where people yeah. were. But... And the first book was good. I really liked the first mm-hmm. book. But yeah, as the world grew, I, we needed more perspectives, sort of. And that's actually what I liked about the two short stories, which I won't go into details about now, but they are told from different perspectives, which is kind of mm-hmm. nice for the world building as well. Exactly. Um, the other thing I liked about this second half was we meet so many more new bloods. Yeah, and it's cool to see all their different powers. Yeah, although, so I, 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 I did like that, but I also wish that um, we got to spend a little more time with them. Because, like, for example, Luther, the eight-year-old who can kill things, right, we meet him, like, pretty early on in this second half and then we never mm-hmm. see him again <laughs> and, I was and is he like, still just out in the woods by himself <laughs> in a hidden like cave with a bunch of other kids with magical powers <laughs> i don't know i guess so i mean we we um we did get to see nanny some more who the one who can disguise herself um i liked her a lot and herrick who can create illusions and gareth who can control gravity but i just there's so many cool abilities and cool people and I'm feeling a little sad that we're being introduced to them and then we don't really see them a lot anymore. Yeah. And I, I still have a lot of questions about what does it mean to be a new blood? What do like, there's even a little bit of talk about, you know, what's normal or what's abnormal or how are these people different from other reds or are they the same size? Like there's, we're kind of exploring some of that, but I just have a lot of questions about mm-hmm. what it means to have this red with ability group of people in this world right now. Agreed. And, and like they talk about the divide 
I guess, is what happened when the silver blood split from the red, and now the whole idea is that another divide is happening, where the red blood is splitting into new bloods. And so it it kind of is interesting to guess about what's causing this like genetic mutation. Mm-hmm. It's also interesting to get a little bit of a glimpse of these other countries, as much as... Mm-hmm. Um, overthrowing a government maybe feels big it is I think it's more interesting to see that it's kind of a world problem instead of a country problem and yeah to see like I'm really interested in the red guard and how they're structured and who command is and how you know what the different motivations of these different groups of people are and learning about other countries and how they've dealt with the silver versus red versus new blood type of scenario I think it's just um, I'm actually pretty interested in that. So. Oh, good. I mean, there was that minute, and it was like seriously a minute where they send the twins rash yeah. into here. We didn't get enough of them. I know, and 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 they were like, "We want you to come to the, our country. Like, we think you could be a good figurehead." And she was like, "No, I won't be your footstool." So she just kind of refuses them. I'm not trading one master for another, kind of thing. Right. Yeah. Um, but that was interesting, and I, I wanted to learn more about these twins and, like, what their country was like, and I almost was like, oh, darn it, like, Mare, come on, just go with them, because I wanted to see more. Well, now that she is captured, doesn't someone have to save her? And maybe they'll use, maybe she'll, like, maybe it won't be who we think it is. Maybe it will be, like, that country or something. Mm, maybe, because it would be in their best interest to, to rescue her. It's like in everyone's best interest, yeah. to her, which is why it's in Maven's best interest to keep her. But I'm also, I'm still like so curious about Maven and what his feelings are towards her. To what extent he views her as an enemy and just wants to win and to what extent he like still kind of has some feelings for her and wants to, you know, make peace a little bit or That's whatever. A good question. Not that I think he wants to make real peace, but you know what I mean? I f- <laughs> I feel like if you, I feel like if you take someone prisoner the way he did, and he was threatening to, what does he say at the end? He was like, you killed my mother and put her body on display, Mm -hmm. I'm going to do the same to you or something. Um, I feel like that is more about power than any true feelings. You know, like even if he does kind of, even if he did kind of love her in the beginning, I feel like it's shifted and it's not about... It's not about love, it's about power. And like he wants to show everyone that he is more powerful than her. Yeah, but he's also, it's like an emotional version of power. It kind of reminds me of other villains we've seen who are like trying so hard to prove themselves by controlling everything. It's like, because mm. if he was, I think in his his best interest as a leader would be just to kill her because her being alive at all is probably. That's true. So the fact that he's keeping her alive and I think wanting to like win her over, I don't think it's a true like love or like true good emotion but I think there's like an emotional aspect to his need for power and Mm. control and I'm kind of curious to see how that plays out it's almost like a fixation at this point like he can't help himself it's like a symbol to him yeah it's like a yeah 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 and I'm also curious to see if Mare will keep loving Cal because they've been having some rocky uh moments yeah you could say that (laughs) (laughs) it hasn't been all smooth basically him calling her a monster yeah I honestly think it's a little unfair when he accuses her of, like, feeling no remorse and trying to forget her family so easily. And I felt bad for her that people were accusing her that way because I was like, she's doing this to it for an end goal. Like, everything she's doing is to help the Reds. She's not 
doing it for herself. She doesn't want to become queen. But I think she, and I think she feels everything that they're accusing her of, you know, not caring about. I think she feels it. I think she's just not showing it. And it's like, yeah, how can you show it? You're trying to lead a revolution. You're trying to be strong for people. Like you have to compartmentalize some of these things or you'll just go insane. Yeah. So I think she's doing a good job of like, trying not to let her emotions get to her and people are just jumping down her throat being like well you left your family so you don't care about them and i'm just like hold up like come on yeah she has like no emotional allies sort of like anyone who like tries to understand like because she's been through a lot and a lot of it she's the only one who's gone through so yes her and cal both got betrayed by maven but she already like had been forced into this situation where she had to deny who and what she was and her family in order to survive. The whole reason she went to the castle or did any of... I mean, like, it all started with trying to protect her friend. Yeah. Like, her, her original motivations were for her family. And while, you know, some of it may have been a little bit misguided, I don't think anyone could say she didn't care. Like, yeah. I don't think she's been selfish. No, I totally agree. And I think the one moment that was a little bit bad was when they're in the prison trying to rescue um what's her name yeah the well everybody weren't they trying to rescue everyone in the prison yeah that's true but but they specifically um, went oh yeah sarah and julian but they specifically went because john the seer was like oh you're gonna meet someone who is gonna be really helpful to you and it was Mm -hmm. oh cameron okay yeah Um, i I know what you mean yeah when they found cameron right right and and like the one questionable moment was when she sees the silvers and they're asking them, tell us where Julian and Sarah mercy. is. And they're begging for mercy. And they're like, please, please don't kill us. We were just following orders. And she kills them all, essentially. She lets yeah. Cameron I go mean, like crazy on them. And she also goes crazy on them a yeah. little bit. And I agree. I think that's maybe a line that's harder to cross. But again, if you think about everything she's been through, and it's not like she was killing like kids or families. Yes, they were begging for mercy, but they were also working at a prison where they were right. torturing I mean, like, you know, I'm just saying she could have done a lot worse too. And if yeah. that's the if that's the worst that happens after everything she's been through, I don't feel like it's enough to like, if they, had to, if they hadn't even talked about, like, if someone asks for mercy, what are we going to... Like, it would be yeah. one thing if they had a plan and she turned on it or something. Mm-hmm. But I don't think she necessarily owed those people mercy besides just from, like, a humanity standpoint. But it mm-hmm. wasn't, like, a strong... It wasn't as strong as, like, if it was a family or a kid or someone who had done no wrong. I sort of Agreed. felt like, especially seeing Cameron so upset and she had been in the prison and... I don't know. I, I have mixed feelings. I think that was the worst thing she's done, and she definitely crossed the line, but I also don't think it deserved the amount of negative reaction as it got. I agree. And I think Cal is a little misguided, too, because his argument is these silvers are free of blame because they were just following orders. And I was like, no, 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 no. Like, you can't say, oh, I'm innocent because I was just following someone's orders. Right? Yeah. No, I totally agree. It would be one thing if they had been mind-controlled by the queen and that's what they did, but that's not what happened. They were doing their job, but it was a job that they could have found a way out of, probably. So. And I mean, I get to a point, it's like, well, if I don't follow orders, maybe I'll be killed too. And maybe that was the case, which that presents a different challenge, right? That's not... But then again, I think you still have a choice, at least to some extent. I don't think any of these people were forced to work at the prison. So maybe if you work at the prison, you have to follow orders, but... Like, you could have gotten a different job 
for the most part, <laughs> yeah. I would think. So Yeah, I just did not think it was fair for him to say, oh, you know, my soldiers are blameless because they were just following the king's command. And it's like, Yeah, well, that's a really slippery slope. Yeah, I, I agree. So I was a little disappointed in Cal. But I also, I get that his connection and his, I mean, like he also comes from just a really different place than most of the people in the yeah. story. Like these are people that he might have known or known of or know, knows their families and feels more of a kinship to than the Reds he's fighting with. So, I mean, it's just, it's complicated. And I like that it's complicated, but... Yeah, I do too. But I agree. I think they could all have more empathy for each other a little bit. Yeah. (laughs) I feel like they're not talking about some things that they should be talking about. And I also think that um, an an issue that we're running into a lot, not just with Mare, but with other people as well, is are we fighting for vengeance or are we fighting to truly create a better world? And I think that's at the heart of a lot of their actions because Mare, when she killed those Silvers who were begging for mercy, she just saw Silvers who had hurt her family and who had hurt her. And so I think part of her was like, they deserve this and this is my chance to get vengeance. And we see it even when um, they rescue Julian. Like, they're trying to drag him out of the prison and he keeps trying to go back because he wants to face Alara. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's just like, okay, how much of what you're doing is motivated by vengeance and how much of it is motivated for changing things for the good and I think maybe that's where Cal's mind is too because he sees all these he sees Mare basically like trying to take revenge and I think he's trying to pull her back from that to be like no 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 you need to focus on what our end goal is it's not about taking personal vengeance for your family it's about trying to get the reds elevated and that's where I think it's interesting because I feel like the Scarlet Guard and the way that they're structured and the fact that a lot of them are from different countries in here can be a little bit less personal, emotional. Mm-hmm. You know, they're more like soldiers working towards a goal that they signed up for versus like Mare and Cal a little bit have been sort of pulled in by nature of who they are and what they are. And it's not that they don't believe in the mission, but it's not as simple as like they didn't they didn't have a chance to make some of these decisions because of who they are. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So what do you think about John, speaking of? We mentioned him briefly earlier. Oh, I don't really have any thoughts about John. I don't know how much he withheld because he didn't see it or how much he withheld because he knew Mare would not go to the prison if she knew it would result in Shade dying, which was like a big thing. Well, what about, because he's at the end, he's with Maven at the end, right? Oh, yes, 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 yes. So do we think he, how much do we think he knew and manipulated her versus believes in her cause and is potentially, like, manipulating Maven now? Ooh, that's a good question. I honestly Because I agree. I think he probably knew that Shade was going to die and probably, and hopefully he might have thought it was for the greater good worthwhile to not tell her that and kill Alara and get these people out of jail and... Mm-hmm. Um, we don't know what was going to happen in an extra day, if it would have been better or worse or whatever. So, yeah. but I'm curious now to see him at Maven's side and what that means. Me too. And what else he'll, um, predict or like see in the future. And it, it is interesting because we've seen this in other books too. Anyone who can predict the future and how the future can change with different decisions and, mm-hmm. you know, what can you see and what can you trust their visions in general and also with what they tell you what they share yeah because what are their motivations right what, what's driving what is them? their end goal mm-hmm. we saw that in the fates divide in carve the mark yeah, yeah. i'm I, I don't know i'm I, I also wonder like how shade dying is going to motivate mare further because i think it, it would throw her trust because she trusted john to give them correct information and she didn't know it was gonna have such a horrible price 
Do you think Farley's pregnant? Yes. I wrote that okay. down. I wrote that down. I was like, oh, Farley is so pregnant. <laughs> Especially because she like kept like touching her stomach or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and, and she kept like... throwing up. And and the question of yes. That sounds... was going to be my next question. Yeah. When he tells, tells Mare, um, tell Farley that the answer to her question is yes. And she like delivers the message and Farley's just like, ugh. She like pales. Yeah, I think it was something about, like, am I pregnant or something. That's my thought. <laughs> That's exactly what I thought, too. But I called that even before the whole question thing because of how much she was throwing up. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. And how she was just, like, really upset when Shay died and yeah, was very attached to him. Yeah. I think it's weird that we left the colonel behind, though. <laughs> what do you mean? Her dad. Far- Farley's dad, like... Halfway through the second half, I was just like, oh, they're just totally going rogue. Like, they just drugged, the, they like stabbed the colonel in the neck with some drug and then just left him. And we haven't heard from him since. Well, and then we just show up like, what, a month or two later? Like, how long has it yeah. been? And we're like, hey, we have a bunch of people that you don't like, a bunch of silvers, but we have a dead queen. So let us, yep. let's be friends now. I was not sure how that was going to work when they went back to him. Yeah, that was kind of interesting. But again, that goes back to the different perspectives challenge because it made sense that they weren't in communication if they were, you know, if they stole stuff and ran away and all this stuff. But Mm -hmm. also because we heard from the different whistlers or whatever that command was supportive. So you would think that they could get back in touch with the colonel. Or what, you know, like they're like, I'm still like, I I don't really fully understand how the Scarlet Guard works. So, um, yeah, mm-hmm. that was kind of interesting. Well, we we do learn a little bit more about the Scarlet Guard in the short story. That's true. Do you want to yeah. go talk about them? We can do that. Okay, so, yeah, the one that we learn most about Farley and her father is in Steel Scars. I wrote about two sentences down in my notes about this book, about this short story, because I didn't really like it all that much. Really? I did like it. <laughs> really? I think... I like seeing how she met Shade and, and like, getting her perspective when she first meets Mare and kind of learning a little bit more about Farley and her father and how they have this kind of rocky relationship. But other than that, like, the whole operation, I was kind of bored. Ooh. I think I'm I'm more interested in that, like, strategy of the Scarlet Guard piece. So that was actually probably the part mm. that I was most interested in. I liked oh, Steel Scars more than I liked Queen Song. Oh, no way. So I, I loved Queen Song. Really? I Both yeah. stories, though. Both stories, I sort of was like, they were longer than a traditional short story, and they told us a lot mm-hmm. of stuff, but they also, like, failed to answer, like, my biggest questions, I feel like. Oh. What was your biggest question? Like, for Queen Corian, so are we still supposed to... Be, are, is the idea that Alara didn't kill her or that Alara did kill her? Oh, I think she did. But and she just lied to her and, and was like, so, oh, no, I haven't been mind-controlling you. So how did she lie to her if she's a singer? Maybe I just, like, don't understand their gifts well enough. I just, I felt like I was still confused about... Oh, she can lie to her because I don't think being a singer means that no one can lie to you. No, but I thought she had her, I thought she was singing to her, like had her in eye contact. So wouldn't she have had to do what she said? Oh. Tell me, I forget how she worded it. I don't know. I think maybe she still was able to lie. (laughs) I don't know. I thought it was, I thought it was meant to be a twist. Like she thought that it was all in her mind. Her paranoia was all in her mind. And then at the end, you realize Alara actually was mind-controlling her and that she's just so much stronger than you thought. Yeah, I guess maybe I just missed something. But it was such a sad story when you think about, like, how they really were in love and had this, like, Mm -hmm. connection. And then even hearing about how much trouble she had staying pregnant 
and yeah you know just how young Cal was and it's just it really makes you hate Alara even more but I also just felt I don't know it's interesting to see Julian younger and Sarah younger and I liked some of that stuff almost more than and even seeing um the King's family like how oh I love that yeah, yeah. How, I love that he had a male lover and the queen was just like fine with it she's like i don't care i'm yeah. leading war councils do what you want <laughs> yeah they had like a really healthy setup for that whole thing like he needed heirs so he had a queen but he was in love with this other guy and everyone was okay with the situation and yeah well but i also kind of thought it was believable that people didn't like robert because you know there was like that whole politics thing like he is flaunting this lover in front of the queen and some people are okay with it but some people really dislike him. Mm-hmm. Um, but yet, he's such a good father figure to Tybe and then also to Corianne. Mm-hmm. And he's, like, really the glue that brings her back into the family that, like, makes her kind of feel comfortable around Tybe. And, like, I think his kindness went a long way in her accepting the marriage proposal. Yep. And it was so sad when the king died and then he just kind of wasted away... Yeah. Like, it, I just thought the the story was better because there was so much more emotion to it. And it wasn't just like, let's have a strategy to bring down the, you know, the Reds and the Scarlet Guard. And, and it was just like, it was emotional and there was human connection and there was sadness, but there was also some really sweet moments. And I just, I connected with it so much more. Although I didn't really buy enough into the actual love story between Corianne and... Oh, really? I don't. I, I just feel like water. they interacted so little. Like I liked a lot of the other relationships we were seeing, and I believed that they were in love. But we didn't really see a lot of that courtship, really. Like we saw them, like their first interaction at the party or whatever, the and theater. Then, and then we saw them at the theater, mm-hmm. and we knew they were talking in between. But really, we didn't see them much more than that, or even in their marriage with all these um, miscarriages and stuff. I sort of felt like he wasn't really there for her, and I wanted to he see wasn't. more of that. I know, it but, wasn't like that was a big problem. Yeah, but we, but the way I feel like we've heard about their relationship otherwise was they were really in love and all this. Like I sort of felt like there should have been more. I don't know. I liked that though because I think it's, it's very true that if someone dies, you tend to look at their past through rose-colored glasses. And so I think it was a, ca- a case of like, oh, this queen died. Oh, they had such a great relationship. Oh, they were so in love. But like this glimpse into it made it seem very real that like no you know they did have a lot of problems in their relationship and he did drink a lot and he really wasn't there for her and she had a moment where she says and I love this she was like the moment the princess marries the prince is where the fairy tale always ends and it's probably mm-hmm. for a good reason yeah and I was just like true. "Ooh, that's so true because like you just get this happy and fairy tale ending and you don't get to see all the problems that come with the marriage um, but I guess, so I, I think that's where my issue was, though. I didn't feel like there was enough happy stuff even before that point. I felt uh, like they were just both two kind of sad individuals who had no one else to talk to. Yeah. I mean, that's probably true. <laughs> yeah. That's fair. <laughs> uh, yeah. But I, I did really like that short story. I like both short stories. And I think part of it was just getting the different perspective. But mm-hmm. I think I'm also more interested in how the red card works. So I really enjoyed kind of seeing some of that how they're set up and how they deal with stuff and how they're assigned missions and whatnot in mm-hmm. Steel Scars. And the correspondences were kind of interesting. I skipped, I skimmed most of them. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> well, it's interesting to see. I think what we learned was that 
it just added more to the complicated relationship between Farley and her father and mm-hmm. kind of showed that while Farley really believes in the cause, she's not super into the whole authority thing. Like, she kind of thinks she knows Following better. orders yeah. thing. <laughs> and it yeah. was just kind of funny to see that after reading Glass Sword and seeing her kind of act the same way in that sense. I kind of liked that we read the short stories after we finished Glass Sword instead of after the first book as we were meant to. Mm-hmm. I just feel like getting that added perspective made me appreciate the short stories better. I agree. I think it was a good time to read it. And I think kind of what we were saying before too, because the second book was only told from one perspective and we weren't seeing a bunch of the characters we knew. It was kind of nice to see some of the background for for stuff that we knew a little bit about. Totally. Because I think in Steel Scars, we're not actually told that Farley is the colonel's daughter, but like because we already knew it from Glass Sword, you could also pick up on it really easily because you know yeah. that they have a and weird... also even their nicknames. Do they? Like the ram and the lamb. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that could just mean she's a lieutenant who works under her. Like, you definitely get the sense that they have some history from when they were at home and all that stuff, but I don't think they actually go out and say that she's the dad, or he's the dad of her. But I really want to know what happened to her family. I know. I do, too. With, like, the whole matching necklaces thing and how she had another sister and a mother. Yeah. And obviously there's a lot of pain there. I hope we get that backstory. But, yeah. So, but I think it's probably good that it wasn't a side story because I'm hoping it'll be part of the actual story. Agreed. So we'll see. But yeah. Okay. Did you do any research this week? So I, well, okay. This is the first thing I researched and then I found something better, but I first started researching, you know, people like have the kids on leashes now, like backpack leashes or whatever, because yeah. I, because of that end scene where she gets like the collar and everything. And for oh, some reason, right. and I went off on like a tangent about what to do. Cause it's a big issue with kids who run and like don't want to hold your hand in parking lots. And it made me like really terrified to be a mom actually. So I switched tactics and I, um, I think propaganda is sort of an interesting thing in this book. We've seen oh, yeah. how Maven uses, and the Scarlet Guard, how they both are using like the newscast and different tools to deliver messages to the populace as a whole. So mm-hmm. I sort of researched some things about propaganda. Oh, interesting. So do you know anything about Edward Barnes? No. He is the nephew of Sigmund Freud. He's like a double nephew. So his mom is... Sigmund Freud's sister and his dad is Sigmund Freud's wife's brother or something like that. I forget okay. the exact, but like basically siblings married siblings. Gotcha. Um, oh, that's weird. <laughs> and he's, I know it's not incestual, but it almost seems incestual. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's, so my grandma's sister married my grandpa's brother. So I have like double cousins too. And it like, oh, that, my cousin's always like, it's weird when you tell people that, just tell them we're, we're cousins. You don't have to tell yeah. them the whole thing. That makes it sound so weird, even though it's completely fine. But it is. Um, <laughs> So he's considered like um, the first person to kind of do public relations truly. So propaganda has been like a thing in war a lot, but I was trying to take a different perspective because we talk a lot about war and depressing things. (laughs) So he's considered the father of public relations. And in 1928, he published this book called Propaganda, where he basically talked about how it's a necessity, not a gimmick. So he was talking about how like the conscious and intelligent manipulation of organized habits and opinions of the masses is an important element in democratic society. And he basically wrote a bunch of stuff that he was using quote unquote for good and then found out that Hitler's crew was using to inspire a lot of their propaganda work. So World War II was like a huge propaganda thing on both sides, but sure, they took a lot of his ideas for that. 
But he was really inspired by Sigmund Freud too. So it uses a lot of the ideas of like the subconscious and how you can inspire messaging. And he, he did just a lot of um, interesting advertisement campaigns and whatnot. So, oh my gosh. Um, okay. He actually did a lot for Big Tobacco, basically, which is sort of interesting because his wife smoked her entire life and he was constantly trying to get her to quit, but he was helping um also promoting it yeah he was helping associate smoking with being thin and it used to be sort of taboo or whatever for women to smoke cigarettes especially in public and he staged Mm -hmm. this demonstration at the 1929 easter parade where he called cigarettes torches of freedom and it really became like a fashionable signal for um like equality and stuff like that you know that the women could smoke in public oh Interesting. Yeah, and so Lucky Strikes is one of the companies he was working with, and they had like a forest green part of the cigarette, and that um, women didn't want to smoke it. And he was like, well, change the color, and they refused because they had already made a bunch of cigarettes. I don't know why they refused. So he like organized this whole big fashion show where green was the featured color and like made it like a much more popular color and everything. It was like the Pantone color of 1928. And it made women smoke the cigarettes? Yeah, so women started smoking the cigarettes more, like cigarette sales went up a lot. And he also did, this is another one of my favorite ones, he also like basically made bacon and eggs the American breakfast. Oh, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) So (laughs) he, I guess he got a bunch of doctors to like talk about how it's better to have a hearty breakfast than a not hearty breakfast. And like bacon and eggs weren't necessarily <laughs> like a go-to thing before that. And then it like became the symbol for for a hearty American breakfast. So I thought breakfast that was is kinda... the most important meal of the day. <laughs> yeah. So it's just kind of interesting to read some of the stuff they were talking about. And again, I think a lot of what we read with any, you know, scientific inventors too or whatever, it's sort of interesting to see how the ideas that are used in war for such negative reasons can be planted for quote-unquote good reasons. I think promoting cigarette smoking probably wouldn't be a truly good reason, but I mean, it wasn't as... No, um, <laughs> wouldn't fall into that category. Bad, I guess, with some stuff. That's but. so interesting that he just did a fashion show to like get that color into women's minds, and then they naturally gravitated yeah, it to it. it was called The Green Ball, and it was... Um, So it was in 1934, and it was like a social event at the Waldorf Astoria, and it was supposed to be like a big charity event. Like all the proceeds were going to charity, and he somehow managed to like disassociate his name with a lot of this Mm. stuff. So when, and like even like American Tobacco Company from some of these ads. So he really was like pretty manipulative with how he used public relations to like plant these ideas in people's heads but it's just kind of interesting to think about how influential like if you've read anything about how we make decisions and how influential even the things that we notice I mean I used to work in advertising so yeah yeah. (laughs) it's just it's kind of crazy so it's kind of fun to read about and um think about some of the different propaganda and I had never heard of him before but he's pretty influential for public relations as like a viable Whatever. Or just the thought of, like, you can plant something in someone's mind and create associations. Yeah. He also is credited with convincing the public that fluoridated tap water was safe. Oh. Okay. And he also did a big campaign with ivory soap to make kids like ivory soap more. So oh my it's just kind of, it's sort of funny to think about all the different places that his work touched, too. So Yeah. That's very, there's a lot of variations <laughs> <Exactly>. there. <laughs> So I thought that was kind of interesting. And then one of the other things I read about 
um, when I was researching more about propaganda was, so there's this like fake town on the border of North Korea and South Korea. Have you ever heard of this? It's like a propaganda town that Mm. they built. It looks like a real village, but it is in like the DMZ and it's called the Propaganda Village. And it's supposedly a decoy for luring South Korean defectors. So um, I couldn't read a, I didn't read a ton about like how that works or how we know it's fake or whatever, but apparently in the 80s they built this town where no one actually lives and did a bunch of broadcasts and stuff to try to convince people that they could be safe there basically and that it was a safe zone and then people were waiting for them there i guess so yeah i didn't hear enough stories about like what actually happened that's terrifying yeah and then this is another just you know how they there's all that like keep calm and carry on type stuff Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that that was a 1939 World War II prep British poster. I didn't know that that started. Oh, I didn't know that yeah, either. Yeah, so I, I feel like I see that all the time, but it was <laughs> yeah. um, when World War II was starting, the British government created that motivational poster for the British people to like boost, yeah, morale. boost morale and prepare them for like the air attacks on cities and stuff. So that was kind of crazy to hear. It's always interesting, too, when like you adapt things that you know like we're from world war ii or from earlier to a current situation yeah and, and change it and make it kind of apply to the current problem that's always interesting to me too and i also feel like that keep calm and carry on now i see so many things that are just so uh not that level of like war of calm, you know yeah. and it's, so it's just funny to think that's how it started and then yeah. i also this is also how i don't when i was looking at propaganda i also looked more into america's most wanted okay and so for america's most wanted they use actors to for anything that they're showing about what the crimes were or whatever and i guess there's been like a number of cases where america's most wanted actors have been (gasps) arrested or whatever because someone recognizes them on the street and calls the police isn't that kind of crazy yes and so I just... That's insane. There, I went to the museum, which is a really cool museum in D.C., about the news and propaganda and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But their um, America's Most Wanted section was really about William Bradford Bishop Jr., who my dad's name is William Bradford. So he's like the oldest person who's been placed on the list. And I just thought it was kind of funny to, to read Oh, yeah. Stuff. But um, 519 fugitives have been on the 10 Most Wanted fugitives list and 486 have been apprehended Ooh, or located so there's still some out there there are yeah because i think i think there's yeah so the shortest amount of time anyone's ever been on the list is two hours <laughs> that's a really short-lived prison break <laughs> and the longest amount of time someone's been on the list is 32 years wow i bet that was one who was never captured right um i actually don't know victor Emmanuel jarina so i guess because i know william bradford actually was removed from the list in june of this year but he hasn't been captured. But they, you can like remove people if they're. If you think you're never gonna capture them. <laughs> well, or if you decide that they're not a threat anymore, yeah. or, or a big enough threat, like if there's a bigger threat, I guess. But you're like, well, let, let that one go. We have bigger fish to fry. I mean, he's like 77, and he so he killed his family, and like no one really knows why. Like there wasn't a good motivation for it, as far as I've read. But again, that was a long time ago, and if he hasn't killed anyone since then, like as that bad as that is, of. I would think. Yeah, I mean, that's true, but... I feel like my research that I did about prison breaks last week would have been more appropriate for this week. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Because we have this, like, huge prison <laughs> break, and when I read that, I was like, oh, crap, I already used that. Shoot. I've used that orange grenade thing 
and conversation <laughs> all week. It was it was nectar. <laughs> nectar. Yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> I've talked about painting fruit to look like grenades to escape prison <laughs> multiple times. <laughs> but what about you? Well, um, I actually. I didn't do any research this week. Chad did my research for me unintentionally because <laughs> he just randomly sent me a, t- a text message of an article. And this is very telling of our relationship. He just sent me a text and he was like, I saw a story and I thought you would really like it. And the title of the story is The Horrifying Story of the Man Who Rotted Internally from Radiation Poisoning. <laughs> oh my goodness. And I was like, you're right. That is something I would be interested in. <laughs> Thanks, babe. <laughs> um, He just knows me so well. And then I was thinking about it and I was like, actually, this could tie into this book because we have that area that people were told is full of radiation, but it's not. It's just propaganda. Yeah. And so it actually fit in really nicely. And I was like, okay, thank you for doing my research for me this week. Um, And And didn't we learn there is one place in this world that is actually radiation-y? still i forget what the name of that place is we haven't been there but i remember they referenced it at one point they were like it's not fake um well this is what happens if you come in contact with radiation okay it's horrifying i've heard it's really bad okay so this is the story of eben byers and he was a golfer he was a yale alumni um he was a notorious ladies man and he hurt his arm in 1927 and was prescribed Radithor, which was a radium-infused tonic, quote-unquote, sold by a quack doctor named William (laughs) Bailey. Um, So this tonic was meant to, you know, prevent aches and pains, and it was also meant to be um, like a sexual booster, so kind of like Viagra a little bit. So... He was just wasn't feeling himself, and so he wanted to be, like, invigorated. So he got this tonic that was supposed to, like, boost his virality or whatever. And instead, so he took this tonic for three years, and he began literally rotting from the inside out. Oh, my goodness. So his teeth fell out. Um, his jaw had to be removed. There were holes that formed in his brain and skull, and he eventually died in 1932. So at what point did he, like, start to notice symptoms or link it to this thing and just like did he just keep drinking this while his teeth were falling out and was like well that's weird yeah so it said um the radium water worked fine until his jaw came off (laughs) um so this is actually really interesting so at the time radium infused products were the rage and people were selling it and, and promoting it as like this miracle tonic and doesn't that make you nervous about things that are all the rage now that we maybe don't know yeah. what they're going to do to us in long-term use and stuff? Yeah. Of course. <laughs> um, so he, he was so convinced that this tonic was working that he kept taking it even after he started getting all of these horrible side effects where basically like it dissolves the inside of your mouth. And the doctor was never charged with his death. Um, he, the FDA did shut down his business, but he sold approximately 400,000 bottles of this tonic. And wow. Byers himself, this man, purchased 1,400 of them. So, okay, so he starts getting these side effects. Does he know it's from that or does he and just decide it's worth it because of whatever? Or does he not know what's happening and therefore keeps? Does that make sense? So I guess the first two years that he took Radithor, he really liked the results and he started taking three times the suggested daily dose. And then 
he began losing weight. He had headaches. He had really bad pain in his jaw. And his jaw began to crumble. And so he... Oh, so he did go to a radiologist who confirmed that he had radiation poisoning, essentially. But he was so indoctrinated to rely on this Radithor that he kept drinking it, hoping it would make him feel better. Oh, that's always a good idea. And the reason that they thought he had... Oh, and he had enough radium in his body to kill three men. Wow. But, I mean, it's also really sad because his story got so much attention because he was a very good-looking, white, upper-class man. You know, like, he was or he was the son of an entrepreneur. He, you know, he was a golfer. He had racehorses. He was really popular with the ladies. So he had a very... He was a good candidate for a news story, essentially. And... That's sad. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and what's sad, too, is that there's so many cases of people dying from radium poisoning that, during that time, and they were completely overlooked. The Radium Girls, have you heard of them? I feel like I've seen a book titled that or something. Is that it, it should be. I mean, if it's not a book, I would be surprised, because it was about a group of women who worked in a factory, uh, and they were exposed to radium paint. And no one really did anything about their plight, because... You know, they were women. They, they were just, just women. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, it was back in the day when radioactive medicine was like all the rage. So they were making um, glow-in-the-dark paint that was made of radium. And so there was a company that was using the paint to create instrument panels and watch faces that could be read at night. And almost all of the people in the factory were women. And they were told that radiation was totally safe. There were plenty of beauty products back then that had radium in them. And so they didn't really think about it. It was touted as something that could make their cheeks rosy. Like they were encouraged to paint their nails with products infused with radium. Um, Some women would paint their teeth with the paint before going home so that they would have glowing smiles. It's crazy. But the main problem was they were taking, they were putting the radium directly in their mouths because they would paint with these paint bristles and they were very fine and thin to paint the watches and the bristles would separate and so what they would do is they would lick the tip of the brush to yeah to to make the bristles a finer point and so they were putting all of this radium into their mouths oh my goodness and so eventually how long was this place open i think a while it was in 1922 all right so some of the the women were um, marguerite carlo hazel vincent albina larice grace fryer they, these were all women who began de- developing really bad medical problems. So like their teeth were deteriorating and their jaws would crumble. And it's so, so, so awful. Like it's called radium jaw, I guess. And like despite their body parts literally falling off of them, the radium company, they had such huge profits that they would convince doctors to write different causes of death on their reports. So they started dying essentially from this. And so this is so awful. So a lot of the doctors just wrote it off as syphilis. Oh my goodness. So not only were these women dying because they were exposed to a really unsafe environment, their death record said, oh, they had an STD. Because they were doing their job. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a huge cover-up. And um, now I want to go pick up this book. This sounds actually really interesting in a terrible way. I know. And it's just so sad because once they had the radiation in their body, there was no way to stop the progression of it. Ugh. So it's like once you reached a certain level, there was really no turning back. Once you know there's a problem, you can't do anything about it anymore kind of thing. Right, right. And so the five radium girls, 
decided to sue the company for exposing them to radium, um, but they couldn't get a lawyer mm-hmm. to represent them. And then finally, they hired a lawyer named Raymond Barry, and he began taking their employer to court. But the case was really not taken seriously, and um, the only the only time when they finally started taking it seriously was when this other man, um, his name was Dr. Sabin Avon Suchaki, he became sick with radium poisoning in his hands, and it was he was the creator of the radium paint that they used in this factory. And he totally denied that he was sick and he, you know, refused to admit that it was his paint that was calling his illness and he finally died from it. But because of his death, that's when they finally started taking it seriously. It it took a man essentially to die before they would address all of these women who were, had these horrible, horrible side effects. I feel like this is even worse than like taking something by choice because you're like, you go to work, you think if you do your job well, you're not going to be exposed to life-threatening... Oh my god, well, yeah. The, th- the sad part is, so the five women who sued the company, a lot of them were already really, really close to death. And so the strategy for the lawyers and the court was to try and hold off trying the case as long as possible in hopes that the girls would die. Like, if they waited long enough, they would hope that they would all die. Um, and by that time, yep. the court date was moved... Um, at least 50 women had already died from radiation poisoning in the factories. Wow. Yeah. And um, eventually they reached a settlement and each of the women received $10,000, which is the equivalent of $100,000 in today's money. Um, but all of the five women died in 1930. That's so sad and so ridiculous. Yeah. I know. I guess there was one of the last radium girls died at the age of 107 and she Actually, the reason that she lived was she didn't like the taste of the paint. And so rather than licking the brush, she just put it in water or something to make a fine point. And then she was taken out of the... She left the factory relatively early. So she's one of the only radium girls who survived. Wow. And this is crazy. So I guess um, one of the women, her name is Amelia Maggia. And she was also one of the women who um, the cause of death on her... Um, death report was listed as syphilis and her friends and family were furious about that and they wanted to prove that she had in fact died from radiation poisoning Mm -hmm. so they exhumed her body and when they opened the coffin her remains were glowing oh my goodness that would be so creepy too yeah so they said that all of these girl all these poor women their bodies are still in fact radioactive that's crazy it's horrific it was just such a awful awful story and it was so sad that these women suffered because there was all this propaganda telling them that radiation products were really good for them. Yeah, and not only not harmful, but like beneficial. Good yeah. for you. And then even when they started having these side effects, no one would listen to them. Crazy. So, yeah. That was my research oh. this week. Another happy tale for the podcast. Thank Thanks, you, Chad. Chad. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay, real quick, do you want to talk about the next book? Yeah. So we're reading the third book in the quadrology. King's Cage. And we're going to read up to chapter 17. So I will read a little bit about this book for you to give you an idea of what's coming. Yay. Okay. When the lightning girl's spark is gone, who will light the way for rebellion? Mare Barrow is a prisoner, powerless without her lightning, tormented by her lethal mistakes. She lives at the mercy of a boy she once loved, a boy made of lies and betrayal. 
Now a king, Maven Kalor continues weaving his dead mother's web in an attempt to main- maintain control over his country and his prisoner. As Mare bears the weight of Silent Stone in the palace, her once ragtag band of new bloods and reds continues organizing, training, and expanding. They prepare for war, no, no longer able to linger in the shadows. And Cal, the exiled prince with his own claim on Mare's heart, will stop at nothing to bring her back. And this breathless third installment in Victoria Aviar's best-selling series, allegiances are tested on every side, and when blood turns on blood and ability on ability, there may be no one left to put out the fire, leaving Norda, as Mare knows it, to burn all the way down. Mm-hmm. Wow. I think I'm excited, I think, again. I am too. I like that we're going to have a lot more of Mare and Maven. Yeah. And hopefully the different perspectives will help too. Although I take issue with them calling it a ragtag team. Because I feel Agreed. like the Scarlet Guard <laughs> is not. not ragtag. They've got resources. <laughs> uh, okay, do you have a joke for me this week? I do. Why do stray dogs chase their tails? I don't know. They're trying to make ends meet. <laughs> That's good. Uh, it's silly. Um, do you want to tell people how to get in touch? Yeah, if you email us at mnktalkya at gmail.com. We will read it and respond, or you can follow us on Instagram at MNKTalkYA, or Facebook at MNKTalkYA, or visit our website, MNKTalkYA.com. Yep. Okay, well, should we keep reading? We should. Bye, bookworms. Go get a library card. M&K Talk YA is produced and edited by Marissa Snyder and Katie Bradford. Original music composition by Timothy Milkey. Logo design by Marissa Snyder. For updates and extras, visit mnktalkya.com or follow us on Instagram and Facebook. And if you haven't already, please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. We would like to thank James Tobias, Chad Snyder, Meredith Kelfie, and Michael Howard for all of their support. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.